Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash the ringer. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. This is the Press Box. We got lots and lots to get to today. If Joe Biden is pretty much a lock to become the Democratic nominee, we're going to talk about who he will choose as his running mate. Plus, we've already seen several media jobs lost this week thanks to coronavirus. Who are the media victims and what will the world look like without them? We'll answer some listener mail plus anoint the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I want to start with a topic we can call the gaslighting of America. That word is probably overused these days, but gaslighting is precisely the right word for what has been happening with President Trump and coronavirus over the last week. Here's Donald Trump talking about coronavirus on January 22nd when asked if he was worried about a pandemic. No, not at all. We have it totally under control. Here's Trump on February 27th. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. On March 7th, less than two weeks ago, Trump said, I'm not concerned at all. Now listen to Donald Trump on Tuesday. Some people did note that your tone seemed more somber yesterday. You talked about that August timeline. Did you see a projection? Some people thought perhaps that 2 million potentially that could die, maybe prompted part of that was there a shift in tone i didn't think i mean i have seen that where people uh, actually liked it but i didn't feel different i've always known this is a this is a real this is a pandemic i felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic all you had to do is look at other countries i think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world uh no i've always viewed it as very serious there was no difference yesterday from Days before, I feel the tone is similar, but uh, some people said it wasn't. If he always knew this was a pandemic, if he always knew it was seriously, then he was um, gaslighting us in the reverse direction, I guess. I mean, that, that he was just completely lying to us with the, for the, uh, I guess, w- with the intention of, of, you know, keeping a happy face on. Um, but clearly what he was saying at the beginning of this thing was that uh, it was fine. Everything was going to be fine and nothing bad was even happening. Um, and that all, and 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 more than anything else, I think it was the that that you know all the fears were being overblown by the crazy liberal media. Oh yeah, that was laced in there too. I, I when I when I hear turnabouts like that from it's going to disappear to I always knew this was a pandemic. I was always taking it seriously. I just don't you always wonder like will and how will history capture this? Like, mm-hmm. will it do justice to the fact that the president of the United States one month, one week before this descended on America to the level it has the last couple of days was saying this was not a big deal, that it was all under control. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, will we years and decades from now understand just how craven that was i can't help but think 
and we talked about this some earlier in the week, I can't help get away from this idea that Donald Trump, love him or hate him, gets handed these, gets, gets so many alley-oops. Like there are so many dunks that he is just being served up for. And he is too, so preoccupied with, well, I guess conspiracy theory, I mean, conspiracy theories is a, is a one way to put it. But I mean, at the beginning of his, of his presidency, he was so preoccupied apparently with his hatred for Barack Obama that he was just blinded to the things he could actually do to like secure his place in history. I mean, if he had been a C plus president, if he had been anything resembling a uniter, he, history would have looked at him in such a different way than they're going to look at him now. And this is just another example where like all you had to do was take was let the apparatus do its job. All you mm-hmm. had to do was go out there and say, this is serious. Everybody wash your hands and let the and let the rest of the government do its regular work and not get in its way and not lie to everybody. And you would have been seen as a full as a, as a completely fine and probably positive, positively seen president, you know, and 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 he just because of his belief that the whatever that the the liberal establishment was out to get him that this was a uh you know some sort of like backdoor uh impeachment attempt or whatever else or that the evil germs were trying to finally get him once and for all for some reason he's just he was just completely incapable of doing the thing that would have just been so the easiest way forward would have would have led history to view him pro- positively that's what's so wild about this that's totally right. And as wretched as his presidency has been, there is still this portion of the media that wants him to shape up, right? And will reward him. When he remember when he had that like just semi-serious press conference on Monday, which he was being asked about there, where he was just tonally slightly different and actually taking coronavirus seriously. There, there was there were people on TV going, Ah, look at this. You gotta hand it to the president. Got to yeah. hand it to the president. I, I don't know if he just doesn't understand those incentives, which as you say are basically the alley-oop dunk being thrown up. There are, there's nobody defending dude. It's all you. Or if he's just so small minded, you know, with things about like, I don't want to hurt the economy because that's how I'm getting reelected. I don't want to hurt the economy because man, my friends and I are going to make money off a good stock market. I don't know which it is. You know, we're, and of course, you and I are throwing like actual just basic morality out the window here, like protect the American population. We're, we're not even we're not even putting that on Trump's radar. We're just saying, like, here are two things Trump understands. Good press make money. Right. How he doesn't see his way through those two things. I just don't know. I really don't. Well, um, unfortunately, it's not just him. I mean, I think that there's, you know, you see even with his voters, there are people who are like, well, you know, Trump's Trump. But like, you know, there's there there are positives in this, too, or whatever. They're always willing to look past it. But unfortunately, as you know, we discussed last time as well. I mean, this is the entire apparatus of Fox News that is out there trying to gaslight us, trying to convince us that they've been serious about this problem all along. And it's just not the case. Washington posted an amazing side-by-side video with what those Fox News hosts were saying in February and early March versus what they were saying over the last week and change. Let's just listen to a little bit of the before we took the pandemic seriously and after we took the pandemic seriously side-by-side. All the talk about coronavirus being so much more deadly doesn't reflect reality. 
without a vaccine, the flu would be far more deadly. We are facing an incredibly contagious and dangerous virus that is moving across the world from one hotspot to another. We're going to call out anyone and everyone who's using this virus as a political weapon against the president. The standard flu every single year kills tens of thousands of Americans. We are now entering what will be the crucial defining 15-day period as as it relates to this virus where we must slow the spread of coronavirus. It's actually the safest time to fly. Everyone I know that's flying right now, terminals are pretty much dead. We have a responsibility to slow down this virus and to think of other people during this time. And so if you can keep your distance and prevent someone from getting close to you that might be sick, you could save your family, you can save the elderly and help our country as a nation. That was Janine Pirro, Sean Hannity, and a Fox personality (laughs) whose identity we have not been able to determine yet. Our crack staff could not figure out. I tell you, my my first was. my first takeaway from that was um, that it was sort of surprising how they weren't able to get them in like one hundred percent bullseye damning parallel phrasing, and and I think more than anything, what that lets what what that's left me with is how carefully they obfuscate the truth on a daily basis, right? Like they like they like it seemed like everyone on that video in the first half was taking pains not to say the thing that could absolutely just toss them out the door. But like they were still like implying everything in that direction. Um, but overall, that was just an incredible reel of, I mean, everybody knows that there are, are marching orders probably at every network, but like they come down from the top. But Fox News, I think, is, is more notorious for it than, than anyone else and, and, and justifiably so. And, and man, I mean... Uh, they this isn't the first time we've seen this sort of gaslighting from Sean Hannity trying to insist that he was on one team before you know for a long time when he wasn't but this is a different place this is not the time and place for this sort of uh, traditional politicized playbook this is a international pandemic and these guys are shouting about Democrats playing politics with it when like the only, like they are the actual ones playing politics with it. It's, it's just so it's so morally reprehensible. It beggars belief. It's politicized. It's fealty to Trump. I also want to believe there's some sort of what they see as a market incentive in there to go the way they did at the beginning, that there's just this portion of the population that wanted to be told that this was just the flu. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a there. And we see these people all the time. We we are probably related to some of these people, as we like to say this, the portion of the population, again, that just wants to say like, eh, you know, I don't want I don't want to be told not to go to a bar. Yeah. I don't want to be told what to do. I, this is stupid. This is an overreaction. I, I saw this with SARS and the swine flu. And I just I just is not I want to I want somebody to tell me every day that this is not a big deal. Yeah. Now. If you think of it in those market terms, again, we're throwing human morality out here, folks. This is just a thought experiment. This is, <laughs> most <laughs> most journalists most journalists come in and say, "I want to tell the truth. I want to I want the, my readers or viewers to be better informed." This is obviously not the case here. If you throw human morality out the window, there is a point at which the pandemic becomes so serious that your calculation as an amoral TV news person becomes that then you do have to switch, right? <laughs> because then people are going to get really mad at you if, if you're you were the if you're still telling them, ah, just go to your bar. I mean, I guess one question I have here is: is a does a Fox 
news viewer noticed this? I mean, let's 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 imagine and let's let's not be disparaging. Let's say somebody who watches Sean Hannity a lot. Did they notice the turn on a dime? And if so, how do they explain that? Mm, no, I mean, because I don't think the average Sean Hannity viewer, Fox News viewer in general, and, and I don't mean this as an insult. I don't think their average viewer is checking Twitter for the side by sides. You know, I think that generally it's like. If someone in your family or one of your friends was like, I've been saying this thing was a real problem for a long time then you would probably just be, I mean, what do you do in that, in that moment? You say like, okay, and you move forward in the conversation. And maybe you like rejigger your memory for that to be the case, or, you know, maybe you remember it and just like roll your eyes and let it go. But I, I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure that anybody, and, 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 and feel free to take this, this part that I'm about to say as an insult to any Fox viewers out there. I'm not sure that, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that, the, that like the truth or consistency matters particularly to them. Right. I mean, they, like, the same in the same way that you like you just said, if anybody if someone is watching this and is reassured by this bullshit, if someone is if, if there is a market open for people who are like looking to be consoled into, into thinking that everything's going to be fine because like everyone's everyone always lies to you. I think those same people are happy to be they're ha are happy to have like the story just, t you know, twisted on them because like they don't need the consistency. They don't need reality. They just need to be, you know, told the new thing that they're being told and they just are like, you know, cheering along with the team. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I think there's a I think there's a little bit of a these are these are my guys and gals and I'm going to roll with them no matter what. I think my favorite part of that clip was just the tonal difference between the before and after. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. But this there's the pained look on their faces as they were like <laughs> describing the seriousness of it. Yeah, because the first one, they were in full cable news mode. Like people saying this is different than the flu. This is just a flu that kind of mock, you know, eternal outrage. And the second one, the coronavirus is spreading across America. <laughs> just I mean, completely downbeat. Is there anything that's further? I mean, do you? Th I, I I don't mean to make too much light of this, but like having to be that level of like grave and earnest on the broadcast must be the most difficult thing in the world for Hannity and Pirro and people like that. And and just because just because of the sort of performers are used to being, I'm not talking. I'm not like questioning their morality. I think. Sean Hannity is probably like, you know, I mean, he's he's clearly a deeply religious fellow that has some moral code or whatever. But like that is not I mean, that that would be like like you and I like tell jokes on this podcast. But this would be like asking one of us to give up, get up at like a, a televised like like celebrity roast and do a bit, you know, like it's like it would be it is so hard for them to affect that level of seriousness on television that is almost as painful to watch for us as it is for them. And that's why when I say how will history capture this moment? Which is a question I just think about all the time. Yeah. Since we're living in it. But and and go you I always think of those Rick Perlstein volumes about conservatism. Oh, yeah. Which are so cool because not only are they so interesting, they just capture the kind of fine grain, you know, stuff that ran in newspapers, signs that were held up at events. It almost is gonna take somebody like him for you to appreciate just what those performances at one in the white house briefing room and two on cable news are like, because yeah. I mean that rest of that Trump Trump deal from Tuesday was Trump going, you know, the only thing I've done wrong is get bad press. I mean, just, we will, I'm worried we will lose the awfulness and insanity of that somehow in this story. When we think about it, that you can really, because Trump talks so much, Sean Hannity and those guys eat so many innings that you'll just lose a little of the texture of just how insane that is. Yeah. 
I mean, I think, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I, I, all I can say to that is like Gabe Sherman, all eyes on you. I mean, like, I feel like there's like, we see that the, we see the people who are paying attention to this in grant on a granular level on Twitter. And I'm, sh- I, I can only hope that in this time of incredible isolation for like, there's some of us that have absolute, like so much less time on our hands than we would have if we were living our normal life. And there's some people that have an infinite, infinite, more amount of time on their hands i and i sure hope that they're cataloging this uh for for posterity and for history because this is these are incredible times on just about every level here's a voice you can always trust the overworked twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media twitter made it at exactly the same time send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received David, among the celebrities stricken with coronavirus was Idris Elba. Twitter had a lot of fun with the New York Post tweet that ID'd him as Cats actor. (laughs) Idris Elba. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. If we didn't want Idris to get sick, why has everyone been saying we should cough into our Elba? Oh, my God. Thanks to Jeff Hoffman. Just I, I, I did a little extra pause there just to let that sink in. <laughs> uh, David, according to the London Independent, Bono has written a coronavirus ballad. So, oh, he, my God, Bono brought us back after September 11th. Now he's going to bring us back, I guess, during and then after <laughs> the coronavirus. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Coronavirus spreads exactly like U2's Songs of Innocence. You don't want it, but one day the symptoms just appear on your iPhone. <laughs> can I can I have a quick aside? Can I take a moment here? Sure. All, thanks to, all thanks of to these, Bill Shiken, by the way. Yes. <laughs> all of ahead, these David. bands that came of age in the eighties that are still with us. The eighties were I don't want I don't mean to make light of the issues that the, that were the serious issues that plagued us We're in the eighties. A lot today, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> Prior to basically anything, everything prior to AIDS becoming a thing, like our entire celebrity culture was just like this giant apparatus in search of a cause. Bands like U2 were like performing at Live Aid because like, or like Farm Aid, you know, like every, every serious song on the radio was about like the homeless guy who was panhandling on the corner. All of these acts just like desperately wanted Vietnam. Like they wanted something to write Mm -hmm. a song about. And Bono has been on that search his entire career. I don't know if coronavirus is going to be that. That thing for him. I don't know if we're gonna look back, be listening to oldies radio in thirty years, saying how like great Bono's Bono's metaphors about this terrible time in our history, or you know, were. But uh, I, I hope he finds his thing, man. I hope he finds his calling. There are certain people that are just more most comfortable in that mode. You know, yeah, they want to be they want to be the one headlining the concert that brought everybody back from fill in the blank. You know, from the flood, from the attack, from the from the virus in this case. Anyway, thanks to Bill Shiken. And finally, David, one of the many cultural effects of the pandemic is you keep seeing the delay of all these movies and TV shows in the future. We got one headline here. The Friends reunion special at HBO Max has been delayed due to coronavirus concerns. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. I guess it just wasn't their day, their week, their month, or even their year. <laughs> Thanks to Mikey T. By the way, if I may not do an aside, I don't know that we need to hear about every one of these as kind of a standalone. Cause I feel like it was, remember when last week when we was like, okay, 
guys, we have an announcement. The University of Michigan's Pro Day has been canceled. Where <laughs> yes. like the pros- draft prospects go, yeah. and then like twenty minutes, later, I was like, guys, I, we have another announcement. Clemson's Pro Day has been yes. canceled, and I wanted to say, like, you know, if there are any pro days still going on, just report that at this point. Like everything is canceled, and this is the same way. I saw like Peter Rabbit two or some movie got moved back. Like okay, you know, just everything is moved back. Is this a, but is this that every is is this that everybody is a GM now for sports that is now in the in the entertainment field where like we actually care about recording situ like t- filming filming times and release dates more than the actual content? Yes, because all of those are presented to us as discrete content moments, right? Right. Filming has begun. Here's a oh, here's a picture from the set. Oh, this casual photo that just happened to appear on the HBO Max Twitter account. Mm-hmm. And then here's the first trailer. And then here's the first uh, teaser or whatever, you know, it just, all those things are content. And so when you lose them, I think you're right. Then somebody, we, we have report, a reporting apparatus that is essentially saying, okay, this is now a news story that they're not even filming. Like we wouldn't even know friends was filming sure. 20 years ago, unless you're reading like variety or something no, like that. It would just appear from the ether and you'd be like, thank God for all you knew it was filmed the week before. Like you didn't have any concept of time and this sort of thing. And by the way, I just want to say a brief thank you. I thought that that aside was going to lead directly into a, a story from our high school years about me being the first person to own like the Rembrandt album so that you could have the, th- <laughs> we could have the friend, <laughs> the friend's theme song to play at like our houses, but uh, we can move on. That's fine. Y- you and I would have an off air conversation about that before I would reveal <laughs> such a thing on this podcast. In the notebook dump, David, I want to talk to you about Joe Biden's Veep. I think we could be a little presumptuous because. Joe Biden won three more primaries Tuesday in Arizona, Florida, and Illinois, all of which were held under the shadow of coronavirus. Nate Silver's delegate estimates as of Wednesday were Biden 1,237, Sanders 937, meaning he says Sanders needs to win the remaining primaries by about 25 points in order to catch up. So when it comes to what the Biden campaign calls its vigorous vetting process for his running mate, I actually think this is a pretty short list. In fact, I think it's a very, very, very short list. Biden said at Sunday's debate that it would be a woman. Given the state of the world, I don't know about you, but I'd be shocked if it is not Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, or Elizabeth Warren. And Outside of that list, I just can't imagine who it'd be. What do you think? Well, first of all, I want to say it's sort of amazing that we, a couple of weeks ago, talked about whether or not we were going to do an emergency you know, pod podcast when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race. And the end of the race for him came with so much more of a whimper than a bang that we're like already on to talking about the next thing. There's a lot to discuss in terms of the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and we will, don't get me wrong, but that we're like already onto this next thing is it's it just says I think a lot about where we are and the speed of media and also I mean obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on in the world but to answer your question um <clears throat> I don't know I mean way back in those those wild days when Joe Biden was just sending out signals about possibly getting into the race when it seemed like a totally misbegotten quest and it, this was even before he got in and it seemed like a fully misbegotten quest uh and and we were just hearing all of these like weird, weird media leaks that led us to believe he was probably getting in. And everything in that time turned out to sort of be true. 
Mm-hmm. The one thing, the one thing that I remember hearing is that he had reached out directly to Stacey Abrams about being his running mate. So yeah, I don't it was, think it was floated in some way. Yes, but but that was, and maybe that was just floating it. I think that it. I think that it's. A, I mean that would that would be a little bit of a that might be a little bit problematic. I I just think that that anybody at this stage, especially going up against, you know, it, 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 this sort of must-win feel of the election, you want someone who's like a little bit more thoroughly vetted than that, although I'm not saying anything negative about about uh, Stacey Abrams. I just think, you know, the other people you mentioned are have been through the, the ringer already. Um, I, that said, though, I find it hard to imagine. I think that the, this, that despite the appeal of Kamala Harris well, let me take Kamala Harris in particular. Uh, I think she has a lot of assets. Um, I, I think that that the Democratic primary, for the brief, the relatively brief time she was in it, had the had, had the effect of, if nothing else, reducing her to a sort of Tim Caney figure. And I don't know that that is that is certainly not what Joe Biden would be or should be looking for in a running mate. Right. I mean, just the, the, her, her time on the national stage, I think, d- like actually diminished her her specter and and may and of everybody on this list, she makes the most sense on paper. I'm not sure if she if that's if there's enough oomph there for that to actually be the choice. But as we've seen in the past, that might not be the decider. I think Elizabeth Warren would be a really great like, you know, like pull back the curtain surprise sort of, especially after, you know, mm-hmm. um the his especially after going head to head with Bernie Sanders for a short amount of time, but you know that being that being the um, you know his his primary uh, opponent, um, you know Klobuchar is you know was has always been more Tim Kaine than Kamala Harris could ever dream of being, and, and so in some so you can actually see that path, but I think that would be a a sort of whoopee cushion sound effect of a selection. Uh, <laughs> But when he when he decided when he announced that he was going to have a woman, and I think that was, I mean, I think that it, it was one of those weird statements that, like, like you, like certainly that that is, I mean, that is like, actually um, uh, Bernie Sanders' response to that question, I think, was 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 the perfect one, where he was like, "That will almost certainly be the case. Like, we all know what we're, what, you know, we all know what's going to happen." But Joe Biden saying that he was going to select a woman with 100% certainty led you to you. Everybody started making their checklist, and then you start going through them, and then now there's no chance for a big reveal. Almost, I mean, I, I just don't know that there's a perfect person for this for for this selection. But um, I guess we'll see. I don't know. There's a perfect person either, and but I guess that doesn't exactly make it um, different because who was Hillary's perfect person? Who, by the way, was Barack Obama's perfect person? You know, I think Joe Biden was kind of only that in hindsight, and because Obama was going to basically run away and win that election anyway, minus some crazy thing happening. I just think when, in terms of shrinking this list, the thing about coronavirus to me just changes the game here incredibly, because I just think that kind of very interesting, extremely talented, but relic, but without the kind of big time experience person just becomes a lot harder for him to pick no matter who they are. I'd say the same about Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Doing good job. Apparently with coronavirus, everything she's a first term governor. I just don't, I don't see that happening here because yeah. the world has changed a ton in the last couple of weeks. And I also think Biden, even beyond that, Joe Biden has a particular image of what a vice president should be. And that image is basically Joe Biden. 
right? It's this experienced figure who knows people and knows everything rather than the kind of, you know, hot prospect who comes out of left field. And I'd just be real shocked if he, there's no Joe Biden equivalent, some dude who was like way more experienced than the guy who was at the top of the ticket. But I just think, I think he's going to, I think he's going to lean that way. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is he, I mean, if he's looking at it that way, he's actually, I mean, that's sort of half right, but in the wrong direction. Um, I mean, he is, he, he, he needs a Joe Biden, but I mean, he is the Joe Biden on the car. I mean, literally he is the Joe Biden on the ticket. <laughs> In a lot of ways, he does he does what a vice president would normally do, right? He shores up a certain you know designated voting block. He he uh, he he adds a certain sort of like personality appeal where where another person would be you know the, the main candidate might be lacking. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine exactly what the model is unless the model is actually Mike Pence and 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 Donald Trump, right? I mean, at this point. Given Joe, given given Joe Biden's experience and and frankly his you know his age and everything else, I mean Joe Biden is the guy that like gets you past the finish line. What he needs is someone who's like connected and functional and can like you know drive most of the agenda. And whether that's uh, you know Elizabeth Warren, who's clearly like driven in that direction, or someone who's you know maybe even more institutional than that, I don't know. But you know I, I would I would love to see him make like a deeply practical choice of someone who's going to be like, you know, taking the lead in every important meeting that he has to sit in on. The difference I would say from the, from the examples you cite is that Joe Biden is old. So yeah. this could, and, and there's a lot of, and by the way, speaking of things that were floated at the beginning of the race, there's a sense that maybe Joe Biden is a one-term president by his mm -hmm. choice. And so that he will need to hand this off to somebody in a couple of years, if he were to win. So that's in this too, right? It has to be somebody here like this person is ready to go pretty much right now and definitely ready to go in two years, mm -hmm. you know, to run for president themselves. Um, if you want to, by the way, talk, talk me into Maggie Hasten from, from New Hampshire being on this list, yeah. Tammy Baldwin from, from Wisconsin, they certainly fit the bill too. I'm just saying, I just think I have a feeling it's gonna be on this list. Let's go through these people one by one real quick. Elizabeth Warren, as you, as you point out, there is this, you know, kind of holy shit, basically the opposite of the whoopee cushion effect to announcing her as his veep. Uh, there is some outreach to Bernie Sanders voters there. There is this sense, I think it would be helpful to Biden to add some element to his candidacy that this isn't just going to be business as usual politics. Yeah. Right. Now we're talking about bailing out airlines and things like that. Right. There is going to be this sense of American voters saying like, oh, my gosh. We're going to get rid of Donald Trump, but we're just going to sign up for the old thing, which yeah. was, you know, we know how this is going to go. Paul Glasters in Washington Monthly actually makes an argument that Biden should just name Warren right now because Warren is in the Senate and she's, you know, talking about all these things about bailouts and how if we bail people out, what are the rules? And, and he's essentially saying her pronouncements on the Senate floor would be seen as the presumptive word of the the word of the presumptive Democratic nominee. Essentially, Biden would be in this policy fight right now, you know, with Warren essentially speaking for him. That's pretty interesting. The downside to me about Biden and Warren is I just don't know if they could get along politically speaking. Yeah, they're so they're so different. And I say that as a compliment mostly to Elizabeth Warren. I just mm -hmm. don't know that she's going to want to basically adopt Bidenism as her politics. 
And even if she feels she could have such a good effect on him and push him like she already has with a bankruptcy bill, him adopting her ideas about that. I just don't know that she's going to want to completely that that's going to completely work for either one of them. Yeah. I mean, practically, that is almost entire, and I mean, that has to be true. Right. I mean, I think from Elizabeth Warren's side, I mean, obviously, the Obama administration was different than a Biden administration will be. But Elizabeth Warren was you know, interested in, in joining the Obama administration as, as chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So it's not like she's averse to being in a position of, you know, in this as a high ranking functionary in the central, you know, in, in the executive branch. I mean, I, I think that she must have been on some level cognizant of the fact that she would not have had the final call on everything that came across her desk being a part of the Obama administration. Obviously, the Obama administration is different than the, uh, you know, different than the p- potential Biden administration. But that said, I don't know that. I mean, listen, the case for Biden, I mean, there's a lot of cases for Biden, but the but the liberal case for Biden is has to be in large part that he's evolved so significantly on all of these issues that he was utterly wrong in wrong on during his the previous 30 years of his public life. Right. And you can talk about Bidenism and whatever that means. But it's but but at the end of the day, the case has to be that it's a that that it, it, it's a more of a, a more of a platform of of practicality and and gumption than actual like philosophy or morality and and i and and you know that's that's a hard thing to admit as a candidate i guess i mean to to really say outright but like i don't see like a direct despite the fact he's out there campaigning on like you know not like anything but medicare for all he has evolved dramatically and hopefully if there's you know any hope for liberalism in america will continue to do so so, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's feasible that both both parties could find a middle ground. Now, practically, I think you're absolutely right that that wouldn't happen. Uh, let's talk about Amy Klobuchar in the sense, as you say, the downside is obvious uh, too safe, too much like Biden, too much almost of a of a comfort selection for him. The upside to picking her, I think, is if winning this election is as simple as flipping Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And to some extent, I think that is this election is as simple as that. Then you could argue she's the one who's best equipped to accomplish that narrow goal. You know, her entire being, as we discussed during the primaries, is I am the face of Midwestern experience and common sense with this very kind of lethal edge, especially when I'm talking about Pete Buttigieg. I can go in there. When I know those voters, I can go win those votes combined, you know, especially alongside Joey Biden from Scranton, PA, and basically just deliver the narrow electoral mission of this campaign. That feels a little bit too cute or a little bit too safe. That feels a little bit like a little bit, you know, not quite John Edwardsy, but but in that same line, like I'm not exactly sure that I, I guess I think that. I've said this before, but if we're, I mean, I think it's totally feasible that this is going to be another marginal election and that Joe Biden will win strictly because he opened up two extra campaign offices that Hillary Clinton didn't open. But it's imp- you cannot run your campaign that way. And Klobuchar feels like the choice of the selection of that campaign. Mm, right. It's yeah. it's just too it's, it's too comfortable of a choice. I, I just say don't underestimate how safe Joe Biden is wants to be yeah yeah we should not i mean this is a dude who's just been going around saying results not revolution right Mm -hmm. incrementalism and 
he can argue based on the results of the primary that that worked as, as crazy as it seemed that that, that was the winning, the winning number for him. So I just, whatever, whomever he picks in terms of Kamala Harris, um, also feels politically, I think, at least on terms of like actual issue positions, very safe though, picking an African-American woman to be your vice president just carries with it a whole different feeling than picking Amy Klobuchar to be your vice president. Um, In electoral terms, Hillary Clinton had a not insignificant problem that a large number of African-American voters who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 just stayed home in 2016. Right. So that, so that's an issue. Jim Clyburn, who we know is the savior of Joe Biden's campaign has come out and said, I would prefer the running mate to be an African American woman. The downside I think with Harris is interesting because as you say, I'm not sure that Kamala Harris revealed herself as a good candidate during her somewhat brief run for president. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe the idea is she's a be- she would be a better administrator, vice president, future president than she is a candidate. So maybe that's part of this too. What do you think of her? I think the last thing you said is 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 the argument, right? I mean, I mean that that's the, that's the case for her. I think that you know maybe this wasn't the moment for her to be running for president. Maybe she needed a few more reps. Maybe whatever other you know metaphor you want to say, but like she certainly has a lot. There's a reason why she was touted as a future presidential candidate for so long. You know, I mean, she's she is, and uh, I think she could potentially be effective in that role. Now, you know, when you don't have you know, when she didn't set the world on fire during this run, obviously, and she's got a lot of a lot of questions to answer for the sort of Bernie Sanders side of the base. Um, you know, if I see her called a cop on Twitter one more time, I think it's just going to like formally become part of her name. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it, it it's difficult, but I think the upside. I, I think you know personally, and 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 I think. Uh, practically, I think that that she's a better choice than Klobuchar. So, um, and, and certainly, like I think that that, I, I, like I said, I think the effect of the primary was that it sort of diminished the wow factor of selecting her. But certainly, that you know the 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 image of them on stage together at the convention is going to be a sort of is a, like a historical wow factor. You know, I mean, it's going to have it's going it's going to mean it's going to it's going to have a deeper meaning uh, certainly than seeing him in you know, Klobuchar standing side by side. So, um, and I think, and obviously Jim Clyburn is going to carry a lot of weight in this conversation too. Yeah. And I think in Kamala Harris has a very compelling personal story. Some of which, by the way, she used against Biden in that famous debate, uh, that will be an interesting part of a campaign. And boy, this is, again, it's, it's a small list, but it's an interesting list and it will reveal a lot about, the way Biden thinks he's going to win this election and then govern afterwards. Again, we're assuming a lot. I want to talk about media layoffs, David. Max Reed made a point on Twitter the other day that after coronavirus, our cities aren't going to look the same. Those cool movie theaters and used bookstores that you and I love, many of them are going to be closed and they're probably not going to open again. Mm-hmm. I think we could say the same thing about the media. You know, the Kroger and Rite Aid of media is not going to be killed off by coronavirus. It's the cool used bookstore of media. 
that's going to yeah. be hurt by this. The little oddities of our world that make it a snazzy place, the kind of muckraking joints that don't have huge margins. Just a little roundup here of cuts we've already seen across the country in alt weeklies. The San Antonio Current laid off 10 employees Wednesday due to advertising. So the majority of our advertisers are ce- ceasing operations as quarantine measures go into effect. Uh, the Alt Weekly Creative Loafing Tampa Bay uh, laid off seven of 12 employees. Metro Times in Detroit, eight staffers. The Cleveland Scene, five. The Oklahoma Gazette lays off the staff and ceases print publication, at least temporarily. Voice Media, which owns Alt Weeklies in Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, sends an email to employees saying you have to take a pay cut of between 25 and 35%. And even that may not be enough, uh, they say to management. I just feel that as a category, that's the most endangered one right now. And we could in weeks, months, however long uh, it takes for life to get back to quote unquote normal. When that period comes, we could be facing a world where that whole category basically doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating. I mean, it's not it's not specific to media, publishing, anything else. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of stories that are sort of bunk, you know, that are out there on social media and stuff. But they, but there's too many of them for them to all be untrue. Just story after story of companies that seem to be using the coronavirus and just like, a, you know, whatever downturn this is that's already come into effect as an excuse just to lay off all the people that they've been wanting to lay off for a while, but we're waiting for like a PR pass, you know? Um, Obviously, there's some financial reality to this and economic reality, and 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 sure, like everybody can can prove, you know, can show you the receipt that that tells you that, um, that the you know the layoffs were necessary. But I mean, this is everything that Elizabeth Warren and and to a certain extent Bernie Sanders were running on. I mean, these corporations, even night corporations, businesses have a social responsibility to our country to not be doing this right now, and um. They're about to just be like handed out a bunch of loans from the federal government, and that's not going to get anybody their jobs back. I think you're right. It's the new reality. And I think that it's going to be that that all more, you know, moralizing aside, it's going to our country's going to really suffer for it. We have we're going to have a, a, a thoroughly hobbled media landscape, even more so than it was when this thing started. And that's the exact opposite of what we need in a world where. Like we talked about it before, where the word where, where like the honest truth about coronavirus just wasn't getting to people fast enough. You know, I mean, there, there, people. I mean, the media was not as equipped as it should have been, largely because of the sort of hobbling layoffs over the past decade. Um, to be answering questions for the people that that are begging for those answers, and and um, and that's a real shame. Yeah, and I think that all weekly category. I mean, we've seen it be so decimated anyway, right? Either closed in some cases, zombified you know, in the cases of like LA weekly and places mm-hmm. like that. So there wasn't like, there wasn't much, there wasn't much left. Then you take away and I'm not, again, I'm not letting those proprietors off the hook, but you take away like all the concert ads, right. That those co- things are powered on, right. No concerts going on right now. Um, you know, all the, all those kinds of things that floated that place, restaurant ads, those kinds of things, those are all closed. So that's not great. Um, we learned today that Playboy is killing its print edition as part of the coronavirus. Baron Ernst points us to this headline. 
coronavirus kills 66 year old playboy that was wow. somebody's comedy attempt um also on tuesday los angeles radio station k-rock yeah. fired the staff of its morning show kevin in the morning with ali and jensen aka formerly kevin and bean wow. which was wild um that seemed to be at least it was sold by the radio station as something we wanted to do anyway not sure why like a couple of days into the pandemic when people are turning to familiar voices on the radio that way that would be the time to do it uh that was weird the other one that caught my eye was the athletic offering 90 days free to join the athletic now they're an interesting case study right because their whole cell or a lot of their cell anyway was this is just sports writing this is sports writing like you used to get from your newspaper sports page in a lot of ways it's quite a bit better it's farther ranging, it's more imaginative, et cetera, et cetera. But it's sports writing, right? We're not one of those places where we are essentially do sports writing and pop culture writing as one thing. No, like the ringers. Right. Or like every sports radio station that does like wire recaps and stuff like that. We stick to sports. Now there are no sports. So there's a question of what happens to the athletic. Something you and I have you know, talked about it various times financially. Can you still get new people on board to subscribe when you just don't, other than the off season of the NFL, which is just absolutely unkillable, you're just not going to have that drip drip of news for maybe months. And, you know, again, I don't know how many, here's a cool thing that happened in 1992. And I'd say this, not just about the athletic, but any of us we can do and still keep people's attention. You know, at some point they're like, okay, <laughs> I got it. You know, what, what else is going on? So that's a good one. You want to do a little listener mail, David? Yeah, let's do it. This comes from Josh Peterson it says, Brian, how many times do you smash your head into a wall the last few days when someone mentions what will happen to TV ratings if games have no fans? <laughs> this was actually written uh, before the games were canceled. I am, um, Coronavirus really clarifies a lot of things. If sports TV ratings were my least favorite thing before the virus, they are now my like in a sub basement of least favorite things. And this whole I, I, I I'm interested in the ESPN. What is ESPN gonna do? You know, but at some at some extent, ESPN is just like playing three card money right now. They're just doing it. They're doing what we're all doing. You know, yeah. There's something else. There's something else to watch. Um, and you know, I'm not really sure. There's we've seen like this great post-sport strategy for any of these places. And at least I haven't, this comes from Jace Barton, David, we touched on this a little bit. I wanted to re-ask it to you formally though. How do you think the coronavirus outbreak would be different in the world of 20 years ago? To what extent does the rise of social media and the ever faster news cycle help or hurt the world's response? I kind of want to take the first part of that. Okay. Let's say coronavirus breaks out in 2000. You and I sitting there using our, dial up modem from home maybe mm-hmm. what does that world look like oh man um i mean I was, we'd be getting so much of our information from word of mouth right i mean i'm 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 out here in the relative wilderness compared to the life i normally live but um you know i've gotten as much information prior to the, everything kind of shutting down from like the people behind the counters at shops and they have from like the local news and stuff. And I got to imagine it would have been more like that. Um, but 
I mean, I, 20 years ago, I'm trying to flash back that far. Thanks for reminding me that I had a dial-up modem back then because now I feel really old. But um, I, I, you know, I think I would have just been watching a lot more, a lot of television to try to absorb everything, right? I mean, I think we would have been, like 20 years ago, we were, I think we were basically still like tuning into the nightly evening news just to like tally up the, you know, this, the, the new numbers of, of sick people or whatever else, right? Totally. Cable news was in its relative infancy. I'm not sure if your your mom and my mom had cell phones in 2000. They did not. My mom did not. Um, so, you know, even like calling your parents, you'd be calling the landline to check mm-hmm. in. I just wonder, you know, it's like we talked about how slow moving governments were and also information was about don't not don't go out, you know, sequester yourself. Don't don't be around older people who are who are more sort of endangered by this. I, I really am interested how that would have spread and whether that would have spread faster or slower. I don't know that maybe it, maybe it doesn't make a difference, especially if Donald Trump is president in this uh, counterfactual. But, you know, if we were listening, waiting for the NBC nightly news and probably wall to wall network specials during the day, I think, because I think that world would have changed too without cable news being what it is. I just, I just wonder, you know, I really wonder how if we would have been any faster or slower, or maybe that all just kind of comes out in the wash eventually. Oh man, it's really—I mean, it's—it's it's almost painful to think about if the answer is if the answer is that we'd be we would have been better off. I, I just I, I uh... yeah, I don't not even better off. Just just how the information would have been disseminated. Like you, you and I as kids are our their schools were closed. Like just think about how to how we would have found that out. Would it called the school in 2000? Like there wasn't, there wasn't a wide ranging email system like for, for schools to send out info over email in 2000. No, I don't think. And so it's like, we just like call the secretary at the school and say, Hey, is school, is school in today? Yeah. I mean, there were also like, wait for your man, friends to call you. How, how far back are we going in time? There were also like general purpose phone numbers you could call, right? I mean, you could like call, like the police, not nine one one, but like <laughs> before three one one, you could like call like a like a like any sort of government office and ask them if there was school, right? I mean, there would be. I mean, there would be. Obviously, it'd be like on the crawl at the bottom of the TV screen, but you could also like like place a call to the public library and ask them like really interesting, really just basic questions about life, and sometimes they would have an answer for you. Yeah, you also just think when we talked about Fox News earlier, that was around, but that didn't have nearly the oomph that it does now. And it would have been much smaller. And again, I think Judy Woodruff and, you know, Bernie Shaw type characters on CNN would have been the major news anchors giving you the news. You know, you would have had O'Reilly and that kind of stuff. But but it felt like that would have been a little more to the side. And that's interesting how this would have worked. Evan Bretzman sent us a letter. David says, if you listen to an audio book, this is not coronavirus related. If you listen to an audio book, are you allowed to say you read the book? <laughs> you you two seem as authoritative as anyone to make an official judgment. Um, yeah, my my instinct is to say no, but I'm not sure that there is a significant difference uh, in this day and age. And more than anything else, for lack of a better term for what you do with an audiobook that doesn't seem inherently misleading or or insulting. I'm inclined to say yes, you can say you've read it just strictly for convenience sake, for simplicity's sake. 
when you're, you're just saying like conversationally, it's too hard to attach the audiobook asterisk to the conversation. Like, yeah, I read the David McCullough pioneers book, but, oh, but it was actually, it was the audiobook. It's yeah. easier to say, I read the new David McCullough. Like why get into a conversation about the methods of, of absorption when you're just actually talking about the content? I don't ever want to be anti-modernity and I'm like, I don't like consider it any morally lower on a moral scale to, to consume something by audiobook, but it is kind of bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, and I hear, and I have lots of friends who do that. It's like, they, they just read a ton of books because yeah. they're just consuming them very, very quickly in audio form, especially like in LA because you're driving everywhere, but it is kind of bullshit. Let's be honest. You don't even own the book. You know, you didn't look at the words. I know, I know I sound, I know I sound really old, old here, but I, I just, I, I kind of don't count. I, I totally count it, but I kind of don't count it. Yeah. I really don't. Well, what if someone says they read the press box this week? They, are you accepting? <laughs> yeah. They picked us up at a local newsstand that had been deserted. <laughs> this one, David is from Kirk A. Beto. How would, and this is also written before the, uh, before this actually came to pass, how would Brian and David pass the time if they were stuck at home in quarantine? I would have had a lot of different answers, I think, a week or two ago than I do right now. I mean, I think the practical answer is like, I just like spending a lot of time with my family and spending a lot of time trying to work in the intervening time. Yes. And uh, as I can hear my baby yelling like three rooms away, I think, you know, that's a pretty good indication of how it's been my time. I mean, it's been... It, it's been wonderful and just completely scary and wild at the same time. So, um, you know, I, I think the reality is you just you just you keep trucking. Yeah, it feels like there's those Twitter side by sides, how I thought I would spend the quarantine and how oh, yeah. I actually spent the quarantine. Absolutely. And the how I thought is like me wearing a, you know, tweed jacket with an unlit pipe in my mouth and a stack of books that I'm just plowing through. I mean, I, yeah. I'm looking at my bedside table right now. It's like you know, say nothing. I, you know, I never got to read that. I'd love to read that. Uh, you know, call the wild. I just saw the movie with my kids. I want to go back and read that again. It's like, none of that is going to get read. Nothing, nothing of that is going to be done. What is going to be done is making sun butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, that that's going to get done and teaching my kids like rando geography facts. That's going to get done over the next couple of weeks or months Mm -hmm. or whatever this is. This is from Keith Shapiro. (laughs) <laughs> I had to sneak this one in. I've loved the press box from day one, but does David Shoemaker wear his Bernie hoodie in the studio? No, only when I take off my Donald Trump sweater uh, to put it on. Um, there, there is, and that, and that has come up, let's say in more than one forum, that David Shoemaker is is the real Bernie bro here. That's that's you, fantastic. Well, I'm, there's, I, I have a lot of close friends and family that would love to love for that to be the case. Um, no, I mean, I just like, I'm, I am, uh, I am much more sympathetic to, well, that's, that's not true. I think, I think on the one hand, I'm like morally sympathetic to a lot of what Bernie's stands for. And I think that part of, you know, podcasting about this twice a week and engaging it on such a deep level throws into relief, like the sort of, at least for me personally, the sort of, it separates the, the you know, sort of shenanigans from the, mor- the from the moral issues and, th- and and makes the moral issues something, you know, m- much clearer to me in some ways. Um, but I think more than that, I mean, just as much as that, um, on the shenanigan side, you end up, you end up, you know, spending a lot of time 
thinking about and, and for me sympathizing with the sort of just the impenetrability of a lot of our current political system. And uh, and I think in a lot of ways for a lot of people, Bernie Sanders sort of stood for that. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say I'm much more sympathetic to Bernie Sanders than I am pro Bernie Sanders. But if anybody thinks that I'm, you know, too much in that corner, then like I will I will I will take that. I, I will, I will, you know, take that branding, whatever you want to say. Uh, I've known David Schumacher since he was 14 years old and everything he just said is absolutely sincere. I just want to add that if when we were 14, David would say that he was known by anyone outside of our immediate circle as like, <laughs> as a borderline socialist or a social, <laughs> supportive of a socialist presidential candidate, that would have been very surprising to us yes. as high school freshmen in Fort Worth, Texas. I just, I just, just, just want to put that out there. Um, let us do David Shoemaker guesses a strange pun headline. Ooh, okay. Monday's headline atop a review essay about a series of books about the ocean was "A View to a Krill." Yeah, a view great to one. a krill. That great was that one. was a, it had a really nice simplicity, didn't? This is a um, pre-quarantine headline. It was actually pointed out by Maggie Haberman on Twitter. It went atop an article on on NewYorkOne.com, which is a which is an outlet I don't know that I've ever actually consumed. Um, it was about taxes, okay, and it was about a new a potential new city tax in New York City, and it says there's no better example of someone benefiting from the current system of taxation than Mayor De Blasio, Bill De Blasio, who you might have read about during coronavirus. The city's progressive standard bearer owns two houses in Park Slope that are roughly worth a combined $3.7 million. Whoa. And he pays about $9,000 in taxes on them. (laughs) Contrast that with the Bronx woman who's paying $5,000 a year on taxes on her home that's worth just $584,000. Okay. So Bill de Blasio taxes two houses in Park Slope. Okay, those are those are your prompts here. This is a good one. What was New York one dot com's strained pun headline? First, I just want to say I was not aware that there were houses even in the Bronx that only cost five hundred thousand dollars. And I will be investigating, I think, in the near future. Mm. Not that I have anything resembling that. And also two houses that total three million dollars in Park Slope. I mean, those must be like like, yeah. like one of those must be like a garage or something. I mean, the property values down there are ridiculous. Um but to take the point, to actually take the question, uh, it's a piece about how he should have to pay more tax. Yeah, essentially, two houses. Uh huh. I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to emphasize that and and more tax. Two ho- little two houses on the uh, two ha- two house two house town two house. Maybe uh, both. Maybe both. both your houses again about it together. But oh oh oh. Uh. Oh, I know this. I know this. Yes. Uh, uh, what is it on both your houses? Um, if Chris were sitting here, he would have already gotten it. Oh, 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 a pox on both your houses, right? So, in other, instead, uh, it's uh, oh, a tax, a tax on both your houses. That's a tax on both your houses. Yes, that's fantastic. That's fantastic work. Some good work over there at ny1.com. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis, research by Erica Cervantes and Chris Almeida, production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Monday or Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.